Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy D. Kim is a Harvard-trained ethicist and co-founder of 180 Church NYC. He is a Yale Hastings Scholar at the Yale Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and the Hastings Center, where he explores the inequities surrounding health, immigration, and social policies, along with professional burnout. He is also a regular contributor to Christianity Today. For more information, please visit his website at samdkim.com. Hi, I'm Pastor Lydia, and I'll be leading us through the rule of life. I'll be reading from the devotional Jesus Calling, but before that, let's exhale and inhale the presence of God. Let's first exhale all the toxicities, anxieties, ruminating thoughts, every harassment of the mind. Let's inhale the presence of God, the healing and the work and the faithfulness of God. I'll be reading in the voice of God. I am with you always. I spoke these words to my disciples after my resurrection. I continue to proclaim this promise to all who will listen. People respond to my continual presence in various ways. Most Christians accept this teaching as truth but ignore it in their daily living. Some ill-thought or wounded believers fear and may even resent my awareness of all they do, say and think. A few people center their lives around this glorious promise and find themselves blessed beyond all expectations. When my presence is the focal point of your consciousness, all the pieces of your life fall into place. As you gaze at me through the eyes of your heart, you can see the world around you from my perspective. The fact that I am with you makes every moment of your life meaningful. Amen. You can all be seated. Welcome everyone joining us in person and online. So today, let's put the picture up here. We'll be continuing our vision series, exploring together a few of our core values as a community that we hold dear and want to emulate in our lives. And Today, for our time together, I want to explore again the necessity. Tell someone next to you the necessity and the imperative for the need of community. Now, especially in the advent of social, social media has created uh, a microcosm of our best and worst impulses and how we're governed by them. Curating is no longer just reserved uh, for just you know, art directors at national galleries and museums. In some sense, we all have become curators and have attained this skill of selectively displaying parts of our lives that we want to show the world and masterfully concealing what is marred and broken. Yet what happens to a culture 
that continues to put its best foot forward and hides its missteps. It gets sick. Because it creates unrealistic expectations that are built on the aberrations of a culture's neurosis and not on reality. And, for example, put this picture up here, a disproportionate amount of young women in our culture today have an unhealthy obsession with the shape and size and the appearance of their glutes. In reported by the Guardian, the title, read it with me, of this article says what? But seriously, how bottoms became a fitness obsession. Squats are the number one exercise today. And if you look on TikTok everywhere, it's the number one obsession. Many, many women are now going to um, fitness coaches and instructors bringing pictures of, their, of the glutes they want. And many professionals are saying that they feel stressed by the unrealistic expectations. That, the, that this is actually not based in reality, it's an aberration. Photoshopped images, edited, that's blasted in social media. Now some of you here might be like, I don't even use social media. I'm, I'm past all that. Uh, no, you breathe in oxygen, this is the world you live in. People are affected by the psychosocial factors and so are we. We're, we're interdependent creatures. And so if it's impacting a large portion of culture, it impacts all of us. So this is a humorous example, but who can forget almost a decade ago, the doping scandal in cycling with Lance Armstrong, when he was stripped of seven tour titles by the US doping agency and a U.S. gold medal for doping, cheating. And if you ever watched the interview with Oprah, it really speaks to the heart what so many struggle with today, unrealistic expectations of perfection. I don't know people in here that struggle with perfectionism or anything. <laughs> I don't. But... Lance Armstrong said to Oprah on national television, if you want to paraphrase what he said, he says, I wanted to protect the illusion of my perfect life. Now, I confess as a high achiever myself, I'm on the spectrum of gifted and altruistic. Not to like date myself up here, but uh, as a high achiever, the quest for perfection in the age of social, to be honest, is always tempting. That's why as a spiritual discipline, I try to be raw and honest as possible. The Michael Jordan conversations, the basketball conversations where I get raw and I act like a 10-year-old. I see my son act like me, actually, to his friends playing 2K. He's like, yo, I'm the GOAT. 
and saying ridiculous things. I'm like, oh my God, that's what I sound like when I talk to Danny. And sometimes as a spiritual discipline, if I feel that emotion, like I'm livid and I'm not like Jesus, I try to be that way, even if it makes me look bad. Because I'm not trying to display an image of of a self that I'm really not. And it's a difficult discipline, but I try because as I have this propensity toward perfection and wanting to appear that way, and it's unhealthy and unrealistic because we all need to be saved, right? But here it is. Everyone is at risk. Science has shown and quantitatives have shown that social, emotional um, isolation, social isolation is being, having this propensity to move away from the world and others when I'm struggling. Emotional isolation is separating, I'm with people, but I'm still really not present. And part of emotional isolation is I myself hide my true feelings from myself. You're in denial in some sense. And even depression, because, you know, when we're struggling, those specially at risk, most at risk, are those in that spectrum. The smart ones. The responsible ones. The good ones. I'm not sure where you find yourself in, but I'm sure you are somewhere there, like I am. And we're most at risk because... Three reasons I can give you before we go into our text and examine how the gospel saves us from this pressure to be perfect or to emulate perfection, to set us free. First, we're usually the ones helping others. How many people here usually help other people? Raise your hand if you the ones usually helping other people, right? Um, and... So if you're the ones usually helping other people, like you tutor people in math and, and you were you know, the smart kid in class or the good kid in class, you know, what if you know, someone said you need tutoring in this subject? Like my, like my parents were ashamed that I needed tutoring in English when I just came to this country. And it was called ESL. You can't take ESL. So I said, how am I supposed to learn in English? You're just supposed to know it. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's, it's a projection of you can do it if you put your mind to it. You're the one. So if you, you, if you get tutoring, you're not smart because you don't know it. But how could I know something I don't know or never been taught? You're just supposed to know it. So it feels like a demotion. If you're on the spectrum, that's what it feels like. And second, if you're in the high achievement category, you know, let's be frankly honest, we're sort of all control freaks. How many control freaks we have here? Yeah, I mean, no, you don't even need to raise your hand. I know all of you. You're a, some are worse than others, but you're control freaks. And that's how, and let's be honest here, if you're going to date yourself all together here, that's how we bent the world to our will. You got into the school you got into. You got into the job you got into. Because usually you put your mind to something, you see it, and you achieve it. And you're like, yeah, I'm smart. And you might not say that to other people. Like, Tell someone next, next to you, I'm smart. Did you know that? <laughs> I'm just giving you permission to say what you're really thinking. Yeah, so 
So if you're, you know, sort of control and this is how you got here and work up to this point and it worked most of the time, giving up control then to someone else feels like the world is not only out of order, but also you feel out of control. So it's uncomfortable. Third, we're, again, the good ones or the smart ones, usually. And for me, especially, this is me, and I'll be vulnerable with you. I don't mind carrying the burdens of my family or your burdens. I'm happy to carry your burdens. Tell me your burdens. Not all at once, but once in a while, tell me your burdens. (laughs) But... For me to burden you, it's unthinkable. I just, you already, you're already struggling so much in New York. Why would I want to burden you with my problems? Right? Because I'm the good one. I'm altruistic. On the altruistic but I don't want to burden you. I want to be courteous. Oh, no, no, thank you. You know, I'm the person, or you might be the type, you go into someone's house. No, you don't drink anything, eat anything, don't use the bathroom, you just leave. You know, you're just too courteous. You're altruistic. You don't want to burden anyone. You're like cleaning the house when it's already cleaned. You don't want to burden anyone. Or you're, you're the smart one, and you don't want to look stupid. You don't want to look dumb or in need. So a lot of times we hear the gospel for drug dealers, people on crack, or people who, who have sinned and are struggling in their lives to get it this and that. We, we rarely hear the gospel for people who are, for most part, put together. Who have mastery over many things. And to surrender that mastery and control, or even the appearance of that, feels like going to hell. And for us, on that spectrum, the smart ones, the good ones, Salvation looks different. Because the good news of the gospel, for those on that spectrum of good and talented and responsible, is that it gives us a safe place to be human again. Amen? Where we don't have to be afraid of the judgment that we'll receive if we're not that. Jesus says very clearly, Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all who are weary. And the truth is, when you're on the spectrum, you're weary because I don't want to burden you, so I'll carry more, I'll carry more, I'll carry more. It's okay. Most of my life, if I put my mind to it, I got through it. I'm just one of those types. Until you come to a breaking point where you burn out, Jesus says, come to me, all those who are weary. And the weariness is not the activity most of the time. It's the expectation that others have on us and the expectation we have on ourselves. So Jesus offers us in this passage here, put this passage up, where he says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, come to me, all who are what? Weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. Jesus in the gospel is good news to those on the talented, smart, good spectrum because he teaches us how to be human again. A lot of people explore Jesus' divinity, that he was God. A lot of doctrines and edicts are exclusively focused on the divinity of Jesus, the Trinitarian part of the Godhead, how he's ontologically God. A lot of people don't really examine his humanity. As we go toward Lent, we examine that more. But in the season of Epiphany, Look at Jesus' humanity. Tell someone next to you, humanity. Because a lot of times, a lot of us, the cultural aberrations that are built on the neuroses, a culture's fantasy and neuroses, have taught all of us to be human doings, not human beings. We look at achievement, performance, and output. We're not machines. We're meant to belong, to be interdependent with each other, not independent from each other. And so that we have limits. God built those limits. So we need each other. You're like, oh, I I don't like God anymore. Why couldn't he just make me self-sufficient? Well, because even God himself is in a fellowship perpetually. He is not singular. He's plural. He's three. The ever community of love, ever flowing community of love from all eternity, forever and ever and ever. So this is critical to remember that the gospel is what? An invitation to come and fall apart and he'll put you back together again. How many people here want some rest? Say amen if you want some rest. Oh, some rest would be great. That's the gospel for the people on the spectrum. The good news is he'll give you the rest and he'll do the work. But that's hard for those on the spectrum because you're always used to doing the work and getting what you want. Here, you can't do any work. You have to rest in the Savior. Amen? So today, when Jesus says, learn from me and take this yoke upon for me, he's saying, learn a new way to be human. Learn what it means to be human, the healthy, not aberrations of culture's vision, but the biblical mandate of humanity. I mean, he's the creator. He would know what it means to be human and how to be human. That's what I want to explore. So let's go to this passage and learn a better way. So this, this is the Passion Week where Jesus will be betrayed by Judas. And he'll go to the cross. And so we read together in a collective scripture reading for t- portion today. You saw Jesus pray three times, Father, if you can take this cup from me, please take it. But not my will, your will. That's Jesus' humanity. If, if Jesus, like AI, did not show distress for the path of the cross, he would not be human. He would be machine or just God, divinity. And his skin was simply just deception. There is no path to learn from Jesus to be human. But through kenosis, the doctrine of Jesus putting aside his divinity, ontologically you can't, 
he could not put that aside, but the position and power, he put it aside through kenosis, emptying himself of it, and he was completely human. And so what, what does he teach us? He's showing, he's showing us a model of new humanity. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeds. So he's in a moment and perhaps the worst day of his life. And look at what he does. Does he move away from the world? Does he push against the world? Or does he move toward the world? And just like many of you, he's on the what? The good spectrum. He's the savior, the healer. His resume, the best resume in the world. In fact, he's perfect. Never sinned. Has perfect communion with God. Lived perfectly. Never made one mistake. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled, facing the cross. Here are three questions I have about this text that teaches us what it means to be human, a new way to be human. First question, why didn't Jesus isolate himself to pray as he did many times to get away from these boneheaded disciples who were falling asleep on the worst day of his life? but chose to stay close to his very poor comforters. You know, like when you turn to a friend, they give you advice. Or husbands, don't do that, guys. Just shut up. Talk less. Be present. Then it won't be a five-hour conversation. It'll be ten minutes of presence. And your wife will get up and she'll just, like, love you, delight in you. I learned this in 20 years. Jesus goes to imperfect, his imperfect community in the worst day of his life. When we saw in Scripture, the totality of Scripture, Jesus always moving away from them. Because if you saw chosen, I mean, they're idiots like us. They don't get it. They're always rolling up. Jesus is like, oh, God, how are we going to do this? I mean, I know I can, but do we have to use these guys? He would isolate himself and Father, oh, Lord. He would vent to the Father about them. But the worst day of his life, does he move away from the world? Like most of us, our, our propensity is we move away. We move against, not toward, but he moves toward. So second question, if Jesus was perfect in his humanity, in every sense, and even enjoyed perfect communion with God, why then didn't he just choose to overcome alone? Wouldn't that have been easier than to keep going back? Are you falling asleep again? This is getting annoying, guys. I'm about to die. Can you not pray one hour? The answer is because this wasn't a matter of grit, but function and capacity. In fact, our limitations, the limitations Jesus exhibits, is a gift. 
It reminds us not only do we need each other, but we belong to each other. God made it that we need each other, belong to each other, because that's the point and function of life. Daryl Johnson says and reminds us that the center of the universe is a relationship. From that relationship, creation emerges. We emerge. Our greatest propensity and longing is community. Because we come from community. We're created from community for a community. It's ontological. It's embedded in us. Jesus models that. So the question is, what does Jesus teach us? What it means to be human? First lesson we learn is what? Read it with me. It's perfectly what? Yes. You wouldn't be human if you didn't need others. You would be AI. You would be machine. But here's the thing. Based on the cultural neurosis, we feel ashamed when we need others. We feel like we should be able to handle everything on our own. Culture of independence. So here's a question. How comfortable are you telling someone that you need them? Tell someone next to you, I need you. You're like, I, I, I need you. I, I, I need you. You're like, oh, I'm not going to say that. I need you. That's what Jesus said to the disciples. I need you to stay with me for a while. I need you to be here with me because my soul is troubled. Because I need you to be with me. You can ask someone, hey, do you we get around this actual emotional need by saying, hey, are you hungry? Do you want to go eat? We don't feel ashamed. Hey, do you want to eat? Because we know you need to eat. But food itself and the communal aspect of food is not about nutrition. Because when I eat with most of you, it's bad food. I don't need that many calories. I have to eat literally a deficit amount of calories to eat in the weekends. It's about community. It's about eating good food, even food that might kill you one day. Too many, too many calories, cholesterol, I mean, terrible. Why, but it's, it's the communal aspect. But Jesus teaches us that's perfectly normal. It's perfectly human to need others. We're intrinsically, we intrinsically come from community for community. Chew on that. I pray the Holy Spirit this year would teach us a new way to be human in Christ and that we will no longer be ashamed of needing others. We'll actually move away from the contrarian view of the world that independence is normal. It's not. Interdependence is ontologically God's design. Amen? So first thing, it's perfectly human to need others. Jesus teaches us by modeling in his life what it means to be human. Secondly, he teaches us how to be human. Not just what it means to be human, he teaches us how to be human. So move down. So then he said to them, now first he said, 
be here with me. Then he took the three, Peter, John, and James. Three, he said to them. He just didn't say, be here with me. He spoke to them about his problem. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Again, verse 38. Then he said to them, Sometimes, have you ever been in a relationship where someone just sits there and you go, What's wrong? Nothing. And on their face, they're like this. Or distressed, like they're zoned out. No, no, no. Nothing. It's one thing to be in the presence of someone because you're alone and you're suffering, it's another thing to communicate it. People could read caution signs, hey, stay the heck away from me, right? When they're angry or aloof. Now, the disciples could see Jesus Jesus is in distress, but for Jesus to communicate his distress is another level. It's another way to be human. He is not ashamed to say, that he's troubled, that he's scared. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with the sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Probably grab them. He asked for a group hug. How many people here ever asked for a group hug? Maybe women more than men. Like imagine I came to some some of the husbands and be like, guys, I need a group hug. (laughs) Are you okay? They would think that's weird. For Jesus, that's what he did in his distress. I need you to be here with me, but he communicated that. So how does Jesus model how to be human? Not just what it means to be human, but how to be human. He doesn't hesitate to share his struggle with his friends or ask for help when he felt like his burden was too heavy to carry. He wasn't ashamed of his limitation. He wasn't, listen carefully, He wasn't ashamed of his humanity. Here's the problem. A lot of us here are ashamed to be human. We're ashamed of our humanity. We're ashamed that we need others. We're ashamed to ask for help. We're ashamed because we believe, and the cultural neurosis says, you should be able to handle everything on your own. Which is what? Really a lie. Which is why the culture is sick. Let's put this picture up here. A Fortune article did a study of marriages. And researchers who have studied over 40,000 couples can predict divorce with 94% accuracy, largely based on this communication error. Tell someone next to you, 94%. Folks. This is the first study I ever read that's ever said that. I first read the study and I was like, who wrote this? Like, who says that? Like, I was skeptical. How could you tell 94%? And then I read it and I see what they did there. When they did studies of 40,000 couples, couples who turned toward one another in distress, in leisure, 
had a 94% accuracy of staying together. Couples who turned away from each other in distress and even leisure didn't make it. Which is weird, but if you think about the logic, when my wife asks me, and this is what turning toward means, turning toward each other, my wife says, do you want to go get some Starbucks and drop off Josh at school? That's a turning toward, and it's an invitation to do something together, to turn toward one another, right? And you go, nah. <laughs> that right there is turning away. And rejection, saying, nah, I don't want to because I have to do this, is better than to ignore the bid for connection at all. When your husband says, babe, can you watch basketball with me? I don't, I'm not interested in basketball, but I want you to watch it with me. No. <laughs> or if, or if, the, if your wife goes, or you're, you want to go spa? No, that's too expensive. I, 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 I'm having a hard time paying for your spa. I don't want to pay for my spa. That's crazy. But doing things together, becoming companions on the journey, is how the couples had this bid for connection turning toward. And when it got really hard, they could turn to each other again because it became a habit. Couples who didn't turn toward each other, they lived basically independent lives, independent hobbies, didn't have an immunity when things got hard. Because when people invite you to something, let's eat, let's go watch a movie, my wife, now, she just watches movies with me and falls asleep. But that's still doing something together. She's facing toward, well, she's facing toward the sofa. <laughs> but that's still a bid for connection. At least you're trying. I tell people who are in medicine and healthcare, come to church and just sleep. Build a habit turning toward God in your sleep. <laughs> Because the habit of people who think that they have hectic lives, if you stop bidding connection, turning toward God on the Sabbath, you're not going to turn toward God in your hardest moments. If you're not resting in Him, come sleep. Slobber all over the place. There are a whole bunch of dads sleeping back there anyway. Join them right there. They're sick of listening to me for 20 years now. I mean, so then... If you see how Jesus models the Disney of humanity, what does he do? He, he, he moves toward his disciples. He invites them to his pain, and he keeps moving toward them. And that's why if you look at the result of the discipleship and the legacy of Jesus is in his disciples. Even though they didn't get it, they were dumb, they were boneheaded, and usually lost, the attachment they made with Jesus in those difficult times and powered them in the future. Then they all died for Jesus in the same way and became disciple makers. How, how are we going to become more like Jesus if there are no opportunities to connect, to turn toward one another? How are we going to know each other if we don't share our struggles? We don't, how are we going to really be there for each other if we're not going to be interdependent as a community? So, 
How does Jesus teach us how to be human? Well, he teaches us and, and models for us what? Second lesson we learn is what? It's perfectly human to share our struggles and ask for help. It's perfect. Tell someone next to you, perfect. You want a perfect score today? Ask for help. I mean, if you're a perfectionist, perfect. Ask for help. Share your struggles. Tell people, I need you today. I need you to be here with me. I need you to comfort me. I need you to listen to me. I, I know these things are uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable sharing this, but that's because we're influenced and formed by the aberrations of the cultural's neurosis of becoming human doings, not human beings. It's not God's intention. Amen? So let's stand together and pray. I want to give you permission for all those on the spectrum, the good ones, the smart ones, but you could be the dumb ones too. Don't, don't feel left out. We're all dumb ones too sometimes. Um, to come to Jesus today and the good news of the gospel, the power of the gospel, it gives you a safe space to be human again. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. So today, all the good ones, all the smart ones, all the talented ones, wherever you might be, will you give your burdens to God first? Will you lift your hands and give your burdens to God? And ask the Holy Spirit to help us to become a community that would not shame each other for our humanity, but we would become that safe space for so many in the city that are weary and burdened from carrying so much of their families, difficulties, their job difficulties, the stressors in life, and come here and fall apart and let Jesus put them back together again. Let's make this our prayer. Oh
Spirit, we surrender our shame of our limitations. The shame that we feel from our own humanity because the culture is a lie that we're meant to be a certain way, that we're supposed to be self-sufficient and independent and we're supposed to know things without learning it. I want to break that lie today in Jesus' name. I pray that we would look at the model of Jesus of what it means to be human and we would grow as people that could, com that could communicate deliberately our needs, our emotional needs and our physical needs to one another. When we hit a limit, This year, we pray, God, in small groups, in life groups, in cafes, and in dinners, in sharing our lives. We pray we would practice this new humanity that Jesus gives us so we can experience others carrying our burdens and others comforting us and others being there for us and to experience heaven on earth. The power and beauty of God's community. Will you bow your heads today for the benediction? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.